Well, please take your Bibles and turn with me once again to the Gospel according to Luke and the third chapter, Luke chapter 3. This morning's text will be uh, verses 7 through 14. We'll read the first 14 verses to uh, help us to lead into it properly. Give us the background to what John the Baptist is proclaiming as we look at his message, this forerunner of the Lord Jesus Christ who tells us what we need to hear in preparation for the coming of Jesus. So Luke chapter 3, starting in verse 1, we'll read through verse 14. Now in the 15th year of the reign of Tiberius Caesar, when Pontius Pilate was governor of Judea and Herod was tetrarch of Galilee... And his brother Philip was tetrarch of the region of Iterea and Trachonitis, and Lysanias was tetrarch of Abilene. In the high priesthood of Annas and Caiaphas, the word of God came to John, the son of Zacharias, in the wilderness. And he came into all the district around the Jordan, preaching a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. As it is written in the book of the words of Isaiah the prophet, the voice of one crying in the wilderness, make ready the way of the Lord. Make his path straight. Every ravine will be filled, and every mountain and hill will be brought low. The crooked will become straight, and the rough road smooth, and all flesh will see the salvation of God. So he began saying to the crowds who were going out to be baptized by him, You brood of vipers, who warned you to flee from the wrath to come? Therefore, bear fruits in keeping with repentance, and do not begin to say to yourselves, We have Abraham. For our father. For I say to you that from these stones God is able to raise up children to Abraham. Indeed, the axe is already laid at the root of the trees, so every tree that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. And the crowds were questioning him, saying, Then what shall we do? And he would answer and say to them, The man who has two tunics is to share with him who has none, and he who has food is to do likewise. And some tax collectors also came to be baptized, and they said to him, Teacher, what shall we do? And he said to them, Collect no more than what you have been ordered to. Some soldiers were questioning him, saying, And what about us? What shall we do? And he said to them, Do not take money from anyone by force, or accuse anyone falsely, and be content with your wages. If we were to hear... From God, from a messenger of God, one who has been appointed as a prophet for the first time in 500 years, uh, we would expect that we should pay close attention to what this one has said. And in fact, that's exactly what the nation did. Many people were going out to John to hear what he had to say. Crowds, in fact, were going out, making the journey all the way into the desert to hear this man who was not like them. This man who had very little human appeal in terms of his impressiveness, his clothing, or his lifestyle. And yet he had a message that was compelling. Compelling enough for people to go out and for other people, for crowds in fact, to follow. When he came onto the scene, he had a specific message. And we saw that last time in verse 3. John was preaching a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. He came to be known as John the Baptist in our day because he is one who came baptizing people. This was a new and distinct element of his message. It was one where he came and he told people how they could have their sins forgiven and they could testify to the fact of their changed life, of their new faith 
in the coming Messiah and in what John was saying by virtue of being baptized, publicly immersed in the water so that people could know that they identified with John's message. And they would come to him and listen when he told them how they could have their sins forgiven. And there is, of course, no greater and more important message than that, is there? To have your sins forgiven. Nothing else matters until that takes place. And there's a sense in which as long as that has taken place, nothing else matters afterward. We all have sinned against God and we all need to have our sins forgiven. And John proclaimed how it is that that could take place. But he preached some things specifically about repentance. And this morning we want to look at that. We saw the general content of the message last week in verse 3, preaching a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. But what exactly was he telling people to do when they repented? What did that mean? What does it mean when he says you need to turn from your sins? Why is that the case that you need to do that? Why do you need to repent? And what does repentance look like? How do you know if you've actually done this? This is a really important question to ask yourself. How do you know if you've repented? Have you actually responded to the message of the prophet in the right way? And that's what we want to find out today. And thankfully, this text helps us to do just that. It tells us why and it tells us what it looks like that we should repent and turn from our sin to trust God's message and to trust God's Savior, Jesus Christ. And John's going to do that by providing for us three lessons on repentance. Three lessons on repentance so that we can understand what it means to turn from our sins and to be forgiven. Three lessons on repentance so that we can understand what it means to turn from our sins and be forgiven. So this morning we find as John preaches repentance, first of all, what repentance produces. What does repentance produce? Namely, good fruit. Good fruit. Verse 7. So he began saying to the crowds who were going out to be baptized by him. This is the kind of message that he kept on preaching. This was his emphasis. And he gave this message to the crowds who were going out. Now the crowds, according to Mark chapter 1 and Matthew chapter 3, consisted of those from Judea and Jerusalem, the southern portion of the nation of Israel, the major portion there that included the capital city. Uh, Matthew chapter 3 verse 7 indicates for us that this crowd also included a large number of scribes and, or excuse me, of Pharisees and Sadducees. And this may account for John's response when they came out to him. They're going out, it says, to be baptized by him. Walking all the way out of the city, not demanding that he come to them. Not just hearing the message secondhand, but going out to hear it from this man's mouth. And the very first thing that he does when they come out to hear him is call them a brood of vipers. Now, these are people who are coming to hear the word of God. John, for his part, does not assume for even a moment that merely coming to listen to God's word makes them any kind of sincere believers at all. And so he calls them a brood of vipers, sons of snakes. He says, you are deceptive. You're wicked. And John is really unconcerned at all with whether these crowds like him with whether they're drawn to him personally. He doesn't really care how they would rate him on a review somewhere. He just simply says what he knows to be true. And you can imagine telling people this today and seeing how they react. How dare you do this? How dare you represent 
Jesus by speaking in this kind of language. This is not the way that Jesus would speak if he were here. Well, of course, we know otherwise because it wasn't just John who used this uh, phrase. Jesus himself referred to people as brood of vipers in Matthew 12, 34 and Matthew 23, 33. These crowds, as we'll see, want to be known as sons of Abraham. Instead, he says, you are sons of snakes. This was a powerful message. It was an aggressive message. It was one that was hard to hear. And of course, this is acknowledged later by Jesus when he asked the crowds later in Luke 7, 24, did you go out to the desert to see a reed shaken by the wind? He's, he's saying, did you just go out to hear someone who just drifts back and forth with whatever people want, with whatever the message of the times is? Did you just go out to the desert to hear someone utter the kinds of vague platitudes that people can say without really saying anything? Did you go all the way out there to hear a whole lot of nothing? No spine, no convictions, no truth. No, you went out to see a prophet. These crowds were going out to him because he had a message to hear. And this is what you need to demand of people who claim to speak for God. There are far too many people today who are the reeds shaken by the wind. When it comes time to be pressed on an issue of what God says about something that might make someone unhappy or it might go against the culture of the day, too many people equivocate and they say, well, we can't really know what God is saying here. Or, you know, that was a different time. Or we can't quite understand. Or God is just a God of grace. And he's just a God of love and patience and kindness. And he's not so tight or particular on those things. Are you going to listen to that kind of message? Or are you going to listen to someone like John? John the Baptist didn't draw an audience because he came to just go with the crowd. He drew an audience because he had something to say. Something from God. And the reality is either you do or you don't. Either you are proclaiming God's message when you claim to speak for him or you have nothing. You have nothing to offer. And if you have something to say from God, then say it. And if you don't, then don't claim to be the representative of God in the world. John made no bones about what God wanted from these people. And he told them the things that they needed to hear regardless of whether or not they might like it. And the thing that he tells them is that their right to come and to flee. He says, who warned you to flee from the wrath to come, which we'll look at more in a moment. And he gives them a command. He commands them to bear fruits in keeping with repentance. That is the instruction of this section. Bear fruits in keeping with repentance. Now, it's an important distinction between fruits and repentance. In one sense, they can never be separated because true repentance will always bear fruits. On the other hand, there is a difference between the moment of turning in repentance and then the fruits that follow afterward. And we need to make sure that we distinguish between the two because sometimes people will get confused and think that they haven't repented if they ever sin again. <clears throat> or they'll think that Every good deed they do is itself repentance. It's not exactly the case. Fruits are what follows repentance. They are the product of repentance. They're the product of turning away from sin and toward God. And we need to make sure that we hold these two things separate. But nonetheless, they are, in, they are unable to be separated in the same person. If there is no fruit, there is no repentance. And if there is no repentance, there will be no fruit. And so the critical point here is... That uh, repentance has 
two direct results. Two direct results. Verse 3 tells us repentance results in the forgiveness of sins with God. Forgiveness of sins before God. When you repent, you will have your sins forgiven. And the other direct result, and the one which indicates that you really have had your sins forgiven, is the fruit of righteousness in the life of the person who has repented. So again, two direct results from repentance. One, your sins are forgiven. And two, your life will bear fruit. When the Apostle Paul was later describing uh, his gospel proclamation, how did he describe it? Well, he says that he would proclaim to people, even to the Gentiles in Acts 26.20, that they should repent and turn to God, performing deeds appropriate to repentance. This is the gospel message. You should believe in Christ and you should turn to God from idols, from selfishness, from self-will, from everything that is opposed to what God has said. You should turn from that and do what God has said. This is what repentance is and it produces good fruit. And so he is concerned with this. He says, bear fruits in keeping with repentance. In verse 9, he will say, every tree that does not bear good fruit is thrown is cut down and thrown into the fire. So he says you need to make sure that you follow the command to bear fruits in keeping with repentance. More on what that looks like in practice in a few minutes. Well, repentance produces good fruits, but now John tells us something else about repentance, which is what repentance prevents. What does repentance prevent? And that is God's judgment. Repentance prevents God's judgment. This is a warning from John. Fruit is not just optional. It's not just something you can do if you want to have a life that is fulfilled or if you want to make your relationships more meaningful. It's not just something you do because God says so, though we should do things just because God says so. But fruit is necessary because God is going to judge. So we begin by considering the reality of judgment. The reality. Verse 7, he says, who warned you to flee from the wrath to come, the wrath to come. This is a reference to the coming day of the Lord that God was going to bring about and God is going to bring upon the world. He is going to judge the world when he ushers in the new heavens and the new earth, when he ushers in a new era that will be permanent. When he does this, he is going to bring wrath and he's going to judge people. He's going to bring judgment upon the wicked, unbelieving world. And so he says, That this wrath is coming. There is such a thing as wrath and it is very, very real. And for people who do not repent, this will be worse than anything that you could imagine. It's really difficult for us to even grasp what it's going to look like. And scripture gives us all kinds of pictures. And it talks about fire and it talks about darkness and it talks about thunder and it talks about earthquakes. And all kinds of things that would frighten us, any of them in and of themselves. But if behind it is the God who none of us can fight back against and none of us can overcome, then this ought to be something that sobers us beyond degree. John's question to them is, who warned you to flee from the wrath to come? He's not really searching for information. You know, tell me the person that passed this message along to you. What he's doing is emphasizing the seriousness of what's going on. When they come out to him to be baptized, it's as if he's saying, You do realize what this whole repentance thing is all about, don't you? This is not just religion. 
John's baptism isn't just a popular message. It's not just the flavor of the day. He's saying, this is not the kind of thing that you move on from a few years from now or a few decades from now. It's not a fad. And so he's not necessarily questioning their motives, although he does call them a brood of vipers. Rather, he's emphasizing the stakes of what he's saying. And people just don't seem to realize this. They think about the gospel and they think about Christianity and all they think of is that it's some kind of mundane thing. Like it's just the kind of thing that you're supposed to do to live a better life. You know, they say things like, you know, um, now that we have kids, we really need to start getting our family into church. We need to just make sure that they're raised in a good moral way. We need to make sure that they're following Jesus because, after all, if not, their life could really go astray and kind of go off the tracks. You understand that as much as those things are a small part of the truth, that's not really what all this is about. It's about salvation from wrath, from the wrath of God. John says, I'm not out here telling you how to make your life a little better. I'm telling you how to avoid this train that is coming down the tracks of the wrath of God. And you need to listen. You need to realize the seriousness of this. And so the coming of the Messiah then is not just a time of celebration. Rather, it's a time of purification and refining. And the way that this happens comes in part through the judgment of those who do not repent. When Jesus comes, he will be involved in this. We'll see this when we get later into this section where in verse 17 it says his winnowing fork is in his hand to thoroughly clear his threshing floor to gather the wheat into his barn, but he will burn up the chaff with unquenchable fire. Jesus himself is coming in order to sort out whether people are repentant or not. Jesus has many, many things, many things that are full of grace and mercy and compassion But one that's often forgotten is that Jesus does serve as a fruit inspector. As a fruit inspector. Not to be the kind of person always hanging over your head, making you feel bad about everything that you do. But he looks at people and he says, does this tree, figuratively speaking, bear fruit or does it not? Does this person show deeds of repentance or does he not? He looks at these things. He cares And many people are deluded by the fact that because Jesus is a forgiving Savior, that he doesn't care about what we do. The reality is he cares very much with what we do. And we need to remember that judgment is real in the sense that Jesus doesn't just come and sort of swoop us all up in his arms and carry us all in some vague general sense into the heavenly kingdom without any kind of discernment or any kind of evaluation or any kind of care for what we actually are as people. Jesus doesn't just do that. And people talk about him as if he is this way. They'll just say, well, Jesus came down to save us all, or Jesus our Savior, without any kind of defining who the we is who benefit from that, or what's required of us to actually partake of the benefits of Christ. We can't just think of Jesus as one who comes and then just kind of pushes us all along into heaven. No, Jesus comes and he brings with him an evaluation and a judgment. Judgment is real. This is not just some kind of glib message to make your life better, but the message of the gospel fundamentally is to save us from the very much deserved wrath of God. And we need to turn, we need to realize the seriousness of the message. John is preaching because all of this is eternally significant. 
And so I wonder if you recognize the vital importance of what we talk about here when we talk from the scriptures. This is not just a game. It's not just life improvement. It's not just getting along with people better. It's not just fixing your marriage. It's not just being a better kid or worker. It's not helping you to get through the day. What this is, is preparing you to stand before God. And none of us on our own can do this. We have to turn from our sins. We have to be forgiven. And God has provided the means in the blood of Christ for our sins to be washed away. And it's upon us to trust in what he has done and to turn from our evil life of running away from God and to turn toward him. And if we do, then we will be saved. Which is an amazing thing considering what we deserve and considering what a great punishment we are saved from. What a gracious God he is to send his son to bear that on our behalf. This is the reality of judgment that John proclaimed. But it's not just real, it's near. It's near, it's coming. This is the proximity of judgment. Who warned you to flee from the wrath to come? This is, grammatically speaking, the wrath that is about to happen. This is a word that refers to the fact that it is impending. It can happen at any time. It's not just far off in the distance, but it's here. Maybe you've woken up in the morning at home and you hear that rumble uh, of the uh, truck going down the street, you know, the, uh, where it's lifting up your neighbor's garbage cans to dump them in and you have that moment of terror. I didn't roll it out last night. And so you scramble, you wake up in a panic, you scramble, you run out as best as you can, you're half-dressed and you get out to the curb just in time to maybe chase them down and say, hey, can you please come back and get my trash bin? You understand the state of panic. Why? Because there's an urgency about this. But we don't really treat God's wrath in that way. We just think, well, it hasn't ever come before in this way. I guess probably going to be a long time off for us too. We're warned in 2 Peter not to count the Lord's uh, slowness as if he is slack. But rather the fact that he is patient. But he is coming. And John says that it's imminent even in his time. Indeed, the axe is already laid at the root of the trees. It's there. And yet Israel was living not only as if wrath wasn't real, but even if they were to believe it, it wasn't anywhere near. But John says it's coming and it could get here anytime. Picture a lumberjack. He's got the axe right there at the roots. He's ready to swing it back. He's got the tool. He's got the intention. And it's just a matter of it happening when the word go is said. And if it was true for Israel at this time, how much more for us today? 2,000 years later, how much closer it is. The Apostle Paul said to the Roman church in the 50s AD, he said, salvation is nearer to us than when we believe. How much closer is salvation now for believers? And how much closer is the judgment for those who have not trusted Christ? Judgment is real and it is near. But there is a third truth that John tells us about judgment, which is its impartiality. It's impartiality. Judgment is impartial. John sees a possible objection, and he warns them against this. Verse 8, therefore bear fruits in keeping with repentance. And don't begin to say to yourselves, we have Abraham for our father. For I say to you that from these stones, God is able to raise up children to Abraham. John's in the desert. There's dirt and rocks around. And he points to them. He says, look. God can turn these stones into sons of Abraham. So don't even start to think. Don't even let it enter your mind. You know, I think we're going to be good. Because we are the descendants of God's chosen national forefather. 
We're sons of Abraham. We're Jews. We're of descent from Abraham and Isaac and Jacob. So at the end of the day, like, we're, we're really going to be fine. He says, don't even start to think this. The test of whether you belong to God is whether you bear fruit in keeping with repentance, not whether you are a physical descendant of Abraham or anyone else. Now, this was, in fact, something that they relied upon. They said, we have Abraham as our father, maybe not these, but the Jews in general. And we read in Romans 9 and other passages that describe uh, only part of Israel as a physical nation is actually part of the remnant who is saved. Not everyone descended physically from Abraham is a spiritual son of Abraham. Not everyone who comes from Abrahamic descent is actually going to be saved. It is only those who follow Abraham's faith and have, as the other side of the coin, a repentant heart and life. There were people who actually tried this later on. They responded to Jesus, John 8, 39. They answered and said to him, Abraham is our father. And Jesus said to them, if you're Abraham's children, do what? The deeds of Abraham. Do the deeds of Abraham. And Jesus says, prove it. Abraham lived by faith and he obeyed God. What about you? Do you do the same? And of course, this is not much different than the questions that we could ask ourselves. Maybe you come from a Christian family. Maybe your grandfather was a Baptist pastor. In fact, I probably would upgrade that to probably your grandfather was a Baptist pastor. Maybe you've always gone to church and you always do go to church. You go to hear the word of God like these brood of vipers. Maybe you were baptized when you were 10 years old, 12 years old, 15 years old, sometime. Maybe someone preaches the gospel to you and you say, oh, yeah, I'm a Christian. But why, would, why do you make that claim? The question should be, that's great, but have you repented? Have you turned from your sins? Are you trusting the merits of Christ alone and not your own works? And are you bearing fruit in keeping with repentance? Um, there's a note here, by the way, on this, something in this text. These men were coming to be baptized, and John uh, questions them. He doesn't say that it's right to just go ahead and do this, which teaches us a lot of things about baptism. It teaches us that baptism doesn't save in and of itself. If baptism just saved in and of itself, then he would rush to get these people baptized. And he would say, you know, you need to go ahead and do this because that's what's going to make you safe from God's wrath. He also shows us that it is appropriate to challenge the claims and the motives of someone who wants to say that they're a Christian or someone who comes for baptism. True religious acts can attract a crowd with mixed motives. And there are a lot of ways that people respond to religious messages, outward responses, when there's a lot of excitement surrounding that kind of religious activity. But a sincere work of God in the hearts of man is not sufficiently proved by that. We can look at the various revivals that have taken place over the years, so-called or perhaps real or perhaps partially real, and see that... uh, It's very easy for people to get caught up in the crowd, both literally and figuratively speaking. Someone can come to be baptized and still be relying upon the wrong basis for acceptance with God, as these men were here, as these crowds were. 
They were tempted to think they were safe because they were Abraham's children. And God says, you're coming to the right messenger. You're coming for the right activity, which is to be baptized. But you need to make sure that you repent and you don't trust in something else. So judgment is impartial. It is not on the basis of your background. It's not on the basis of your family, your lineage, your heritage, your traditions. It's on the basis of you alone and your response to God, no matter where you come from. Fourthly, John shows us the totality of judgment. The totality of judgment. Indeed, the axe is already laid at the root of the tree, verse 9. So every tree that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. You see that it is every tree for which this is the case. You also see that the tree is not just pruned, but it is actually cut down completely. And it's not even just left to rot. It's thrown into the fire. This is complete and total judgment and destruction. Every tree is completely destroyed. John commands these hearers to bear fruits in keeping with repentance. Because if they don't, it's not just that their life is going to be hard. It's going to be that their eternity will be hard. God judges these people completely. He, bears, he looks at the tree and he says, does it bear good fruit or not? And if not, it is done. Finally, John tells us one more truth, which is comforting, which is the selectivity of judgment. The selectivity of judgment. John doesn't just say judgment is here, too bad for all of you. But he's been sent with a message to warn people. He tells people that there are only certain trees that will be destroyed, namely the ones that don't bear good fruit. Implied, the good trees will be left completely untouched. If you bear good fruit in keeping with repentance, then you are the kind of tree that God is going to leave standing, that he's going to grow, that he's going to be pleased with. This isn't just a message of doom and gloom where we're helpless to do anything about it. But God graciously gives us the privilege and the opportunity of repentance. He is a gracious God. None of us deserve this. None of us deserve to bear good fruit for all of our lives until we hear this message and then have the chance to turn. All of us have, have taken advantage in the wrong way of God's mercy and grace. And yet God still saves people. What a blessing that he only destroys the trees that don't bear good fruit after they repent. What is necessary then? Well, it's obvious, isn't it? Repentance and bearing fruit in keeping with repentance. Unfortunately, many people have substitutes for this. They substitute various things. They substitute religion. They think that if they can come to church, that alone does it. Read the Bible, that alone does it. If they sing songs, that alone does it. And they serve in certain ways. They think that that means that they don't have to turn from their sin. Family legacy is no substitute for repentance. Your parents, your grandparents, your heritage, whatever it is, if these things are in your life, what a blessing it is to bestow upon you the word of God passed down and the importance of this message and the truth of God in the scripture, but they are no substitute for repentance. Of course, riches are no substitute for repentance. They won't protect you in the day of wrath, Proverbs tell us. Apathy is no substitute. Paying back for your own sins, doing penance is no substitute. You need to repent. Because wrath is coming, and if you do, your sins will be forgiven. What a grace from a gracious God. Well, what does this look like in your life? How do you know if you have repented? 
Well, John receives that very question. People want to know, if I repent, what am I supposed to do? And John answers that question. He doesn't just say, well, you know, you should know. It just should be automatic. What does he say? He tells them what they ought to do. And this is the third lesson that he gives us, namely what repentance practices. What repentance practices. And what does repentance practice? Godly deeds. Godly deeds. This is the indicator of whether you have repented. And we'll see this in contrast to some other alternatives as we go through. Godly deeds. Um, Verses 10 through 14 are unique among the Gospels to Luke. Matthew doesn't note it taking place. Mark doesn't note it taking place. Uh, Luke includes this, and there are some significant things here for us, uh, for maybe some groups that would have been neglected or uh, assumed to be outcasts in God's, uh, in God's economy, which, as it turns out here, are actually able to come into God's people if they repent, especially tax collectors and soldiers. But this is about fruit that is displayed in everyday actions. Fruit displayed in everyday actions. You say, how do I know what I'm doing is actually the fruit of repentance? It's in this everyday action that is described here. And John helps us by answering three uh, questions rather from three groups of people. And he begins with the crowds. The first group of people is the crowds. They say, what do we do? What shall we do? Verse 10. They're asking the right question. And that is a potentially sincere question. Or at least it may be a sincere question But it's still dependent upon us to listen to what he says and to do what he says. Because some people might want to know, but then the cost is too high. But other people want to know and they're willing to do it. And it is interesting that they do ask because this is the right response to John's message. The right response is not, John, be quiet and leave us alone. We were doing just fine until you got here. The right response on the other end of the spectrum is not, well, I guess I'm doomed because I'm not bearing fruit. The right message is, what do I do about this? This is always the response. This is what we need to do. Don't tell God to be quiet. Don't tell God, well, I guess I just don't have any way. What we need to do is tell God, God, tell me what to do. Help me to actually respond to you in the right way. That is the act of faith. When we say, God has told us this, what do we do? And we need to ask it with a willingness to do whatever God says, to come to him on his terms and to be willing to go along with them, whatever they are, because our eternal soul is at stake. So what should they do? Well, John tells us three examples, and I want to think through this and then have a couple of takeaways once we've done this. Three examples of godly deeds, uh, which are given to three different groups of people who ask questions. The first principle that he says is share your spare if someone has a need. Share your spare if someone has a need. I think that phrase could get some traction, don't you think? Share your spare, probably could put it on a billboard. If someone has a need, it says he would answer and say to them, the man who has two tunics is to share with him who has none, and he who has food is to do likewise. There are two instructions here. One concerns clothing, one concerns food. Uh, The tunic was the clothing item, generally with long sleeves that was worn under the outer garment. It's basically like a base layer of sorts, an undershirt. And then, of course, food is pretty straightforward. These are the two areas of fundamental need in life. When the Apostle Paul talks about contentment in 1 Timothy 6, he says, if we have food and covering with these, we will be content. When Jesus warns against worry, he says, don't be worried. What do we eat? What do we drink? What do we wear? 
We might also add shelter to this, although that could fall under the category of covering. But these are the most basic, basic of human needs. Now, there's Old Testament precedent for this command. This is basically just following the law of God in various ways where you are not to harden your heart against people, but to look out for those who have needs. And it's rooted in the second great commandment, which is to love your neighbor as yourself. And the idea is, if you were without a tunic and you could just get one, you would do it. If you were without food and there was some there for the taking and it wasn't stealing to do it, you would just take it. It would just be yours. So why not do the same for your neighbor when you have extra? Notice here what he says. He says, the man who has two tunics is to share with him who has none. The man who has food is to do likewise. This is not an instruction that you must sacrifice what you have for someone else, which would leave you with nothing, although you are welcome to do this. This is not a command to give away everything you have as long as there is anyone in the world who doesn't have something. This is rather an instruction that says, look, it's very simple. If you have more than you need and you come across someone in your life that doesn't have what they need, then you should share. And in fact, this is the, one of the main motivators for working hard in life, uh, for the Christian in particular, to be able to take care of others who are in such a position. He says in Ephesians 4.28, he who steals must steal no longer, but rather he must labor, performing with his own hands what is good, so that he will have something to share with one who has need. Consider what he is then saying here. He says to share this. Uh, this could mean in certain cases that they borrow it, it could mean in certain cases that you give it away. Perhaps you give it at a discount if that makes the difference in doing that. It depends upon the situation. The point is, how does your heart respond to this instruction? Notice also that uh, there's a particular audience in view here. The man who has two tunics is to share with him who has none. There, there is an individual direct scope of this instruction that's very important for us to understand so that we don't plague our conscience beyond what God actually says. Um, we should be always willing to share with anyone who has need when we have more than we need. Uh, but there is a challenge in that we have instant information from all over the world that can show us at any given time millions of people or perhaps even billions of people who are lacking the kinds of things that we have. This is a very different situation than in John's day. Um, this really is not so much about trying to clothe everyone in the entire world, but what do you do when it comes into a situation where it says you yourself have some stuff and they don't have it and they have need? What are you going to do with that? This is in essence the, the point of the parable of the Good Samaritan, which we'll get to later in the Gospel of Luke in chapter 10. There were those who basically said, you don't have to help people like that at all. Then you have people in our own day who would say, you have to make sure and take care of everyone, and that's your life's mission. And instead of saying no one, like the Pharisees and the scribes, or everyone, like the liberal theologians in particular of our day, Jesus says you need to be willing to share with anyone. With anyone. That's the scope. When you have and they don't, you should be willing to share with anyone. The spirit of generosity, where you trust God to provide for you, and where you don't act selfishly and where you don't hold on to things when other people have needs. It's a desire for your fellow man to not go without the basics. Now, how do we do this? Do we then take this and extrapolate from this that certain programs are necessary 
in order to bring this about. In other words, that Christians are responsible to go and to try to clothe everyone in the entire world. That's not what John commands. Does this command that we should go and try to call for and vote for and lobby for higher taxes so that the government may provide for the basic needs of other people? Well, there were certain provisions for that in the law of Israel to make sure that people would individually leave some for the poor and so on. There were things like that. But that's not what John is instructing here. In fact, in many cases, taxes are used, as we'll see in a moment, to actually harm those who are the most in need and to enrich those who already have more than they need. So this is not a call to do this, to start organizations, to lobby the government in certain ways. This is about individual person-to-person things, and anything beyond that is about wisdom. But John is much more about this, much more concerned on the kind of person you are than the kind of world you create from doing this. He is not telling them, go and change the world by this. He is saying, what does your heart show that you're about by virtue of doing this? This is what John is focusing on. And it's what we need to focus on as well. And this is not to say that your actions can't have an impact. And this is not to say that you don't have the freedom to expand this far beyond your individual interactions and encounters with other people. But the point is what you do when you're pressed on things that you want to keep and when other people very obviously have things that they need. So John here tells people, to focus on this and to, in your everyday life, be willing to give up what is yours for the sake of other people when they have needs. Now, two more groups are here in the picture, and he talks to them as well. Tax collectors and soldiers. Tax collectors and soldiers, both of them are from different backgrounds, and both of them are sinners, and they're from maybe some unexpected groups as far as being able to enter the people of God. And yet both of them are welcomed on equal footing into the kingdom of God if they repent. So who were these people? Well, the tax collectors were people who collected taxes from their own people and oppressed them in that way. Soldiers who served on behalf of foreign conquerors or at least governing authorities that the Jews didn't like and also oppressed Israel. So these are both people that were not liked. They were people that were outcasts. Um, This second group, the tax collectors, is related to us here in verse 12. It says, some tax collectors also came to be baptized, and they said to him, teacher, what shall we do? These tax collectors were, according to one dictionary, quote, um, they are not the holders of the tax farming contracts themselves that the Roman government would give out, but subordinates hired by them. These were people who worked under the system Uh, Rome collected taxes by selling tax franchises that took on the rights to collect taxes from the people and the winning bidder would take the franchise. And people did this because they knew that when they collected the taxes from people, they could take more money off the top. They could take more money and then they could keep whatever was extra. Um, Concerning their place among the people, um, one commentary gives us the following information. They would have become hated and despised, disowned by their family or at least a disgrace to their family. They would have been kicked out of the synagogue. They would have been unable to serve as a judge or a witness in court. Um, The Jews viewed the money they collected as theft, and there was common agreement among religious teachers of the day, even those who didn't agree on a lot else, that it was permissible to lie to them without consequence. That's how hated they were. It's no wonder Jesus compared the person removed from the church to be disfellowshipped as someone to be treated as a Gentile and a 
tax collector. They were the outcast. They were the despised. These were sellouts who took advantage of their own people. And thus the instruction to them is this. Don't wrong people for personal gain. Don't wrong people for personal gain. He said to them, collect no more than what you have been ordered to. What an incredible statement this is. So simple. So seemingly mundane. Just don't take any more than you have been ordered to. What's significant about this? Well, consider the backstory of the job and how unscrupulous the people were who performed it. What do you expect him to say here? What should we do? What should we tax collectors do? What's the expected answer? Stop being tax collectors. Stop working for a Roman tax franchise for the Roman government. That's just getting involved with corruption and acting on behalf of an evil empire. He doesn't say that. What does he say? Change the way you do your individual job to align with what is right. He says you can stay in the job. Doesn't even tell them to leave. He just tells them to do their part righteously. The government was ordained to take taxes. Jesus later said, give to Caesar what is Caesar's. Doesn't make the tax rate good or right. It just means that there is an appropriate place for taxation. And so it is that the job of tax collector is fine. But here's the thing. Doing it the right way might cost you a lot. It might cost you a lot of income. In fact, you might not even be able to continue to do the job under the standards that the employer wants and still make enough money to live. And so you might have to suffer in that way. There are really very few jobs that are so directly sinful as a requirement of the role that a Christian can't do them. There are certainly some. But in many cases, what it takes is wisdom and godliness. What it takes is sacrificing the benefits that you would get from doing the work in an ungodly way. It means that maybe you don't make as many sales. Maybe you aren't as comfortable around your coworkers. Maybe you're not invited out to lunch with them. Maybe you're not invited to dinner. Maybe they talk about you behind your back and make fun of you. Um, Maybe you don't get recognized for what you do, even when you outperform other people. Or maybe you get treated unfairly. You get passed over for promotions, whatever it might be. And truth is, you don't have to start a job like this or remain in a job like this necessarily. But you also don't have to leave it. You can glorify God as a tax collector. And if that's the case, then you can glorify God in almost any job that you can think of. Now, there is a third group as well, which is the soldiers. Some soldiers were questioning him, saying, what about us? What shall we do? There's a a hint of eagerness here as well. And what does John tell them? Well, he says, don't use authority to take advantage of others. Don't use authority to take advantage of others. Um, These were soldiers. They possibly were Jewish soldiers, soldiers under Herod. They were possibly, maybe even probably Roman soldiers. Either way, they're the ones in charge of um, law enforcement in the area. And much of that on behalf not of what the Jews would have wanted, but of what the uh, ruling powers over them would have wanted. And so John gives them some specific instructions. He tells them two things not to do and one thing to do. He says, don't take money by force. Namely, don't take advantage of your power for personal gain. Don't be part of a shakedown operation. Theft by law enforcement is still theft nonetheless. He also says, don't take money by false accusation. Here it says, don't accuse anyone falsely. Um, Really, the, uh, the ESV may get the sense a little bit more directly, which is don't extort money from anyone by force or by false accusation. In both cases, the tool is that they are using this authority to get money 
out of someone else. They plant evidence, or at least they, they accuse falsely, and they're the ones who are credible. And they take advantage of the fact that other people have no recourse against them. Don't plant evidence. Don't make people bribe you. Don't be in it for yourself. And, of course, the uh, root of this is dealing with the heart of contentment. Verse 14, be content with your wages. They uh, only got enough to get by. They weren't getting rich off being a soldier unless they misused their authority to extort from people, from innocent people, what they had. If you look at this, it sounds a lot like some familiar commandments, doesn't it? Thou shalt not steal. Thou shalt not bear false witness against your neighbor. Thou shalt not covet. Commandments 8, 9, and 10 of the law. This is just the application of loving your neighbor as yourself in those specific ways in their particular job setting. It's amazing how much God's law and God's wisdom comes to bear in what seem like everyday normal occupations. What does God say about this? And what does God say about law enforcement and others in law enforcement? We know what people think, but what does God think? Well, a few years ago, we had quite the controversy about this, didn't we? We uh, had some people arguing that we should get rid of all of it. Get rid of the police. Get rid of them all. Other people argue that the police can do no wrong. We should support them without question. But what does God think? Well, John, on God's behalf, takes for granted that governmental authority can be just fine. And in fact, Scripture is quite plain that laws can be good and laws are in many cases necessary and therefore law enforcement is necessary. But he also directly states that people can use their authority for evil ends and he has, says it has to stop. In other words, God is not telling anyone to defund the police and he's also not telling anyone to unquestioningly, unquestioningly defend the police either. Everyone is responsible to act in God-honoring ways. And No one gets an excuse to disobey authority or to misuse authority just because we don't like how it's used. So then, John instructs them here and says, you need to make sure that when you're in this job, you're doing it in a godly way. Now again, this can be very difficult because they're in a position, they're not getting paid much. They have these temptations that are to misuse this. Uh, No doubt they would be tired of people who kept disobeying the law and kept doing things against them. And yet he says, you need to make sure that you're doing this in a godly way. So when we think about all these things together then, let's ask the question, what does God expect out of us? What does he expect out of us when we want to repent? Um, John does not tell them to burn down this whole system or to get out of it. He doesn't even tell them, in fact, to work to overhaul the whole system, whether it's the taxation system or the legal system. He simply points them to their own actions. And what he says is in the midst of a crooked and perverse generation, to borrow the language of Paul, you need to do what is right in your own personal life. That's what repentance is. By all means, if you have more authority or influence, feel free to help people in more widespread ways. But John is not here concerned with societal change per se. He's concerned with each individual's godly response in the various positions in which God has placed him. What this means is you can be pleasing to God and bear fruits in keeping with repentance even while you're serving in an institution that many around you would view as evil and corrupt and oppressive. You can work for a corporation that has very less than noble goals and still be pleasing to God yourself. 
You're not culpable for the overall direction of the people who are in authority over you. Even when your good job on their behalf does in some way enable them to have the resources to carry out their evil intentions more thoroughly. The prophet Daniel and the prophet John both show the way forward is to point out at the appropriate times and ways to people in authority that they need to repent. But God never tells them that they're sinning by staying in when other people who are above them are doing evil. Let's take this one step further and talk about choosing your life path overall, choosing a career. These guys didn't have to be passionate about what they're doing. These soldiers didn't have to love their job every day. They definitely didn't have to, quote unquote, make a difference in the world with their job. And lots of Christians today, unfortunately, feel like they're not really serving God in their lives if they don't have the most meaningful, impactful, widespread sphere of influence that they could possibly have. And so they think that they have to change this or that thing that they're doing and that their work doesn't matter. That's just not the case at all. You don't have to work for a church or a nonprofit or a missions agency or anything like that to be perfectly pleasing to God. John says, do these things where you're at. We have the freedom to leave. You have the freedom to change that. You can aspire to other things. That's fine, but you don't have to. Honor God with your conduct and your morality and your pleasingness to him in whatever place you find yourself and act in wisdom as you proceed forward in choosing what you will do. So you might be a tradesman, you might be a salesman, you might be an engineer, you might work in healthcare, you might not even have a paying job at all, but you're busy in other gainful activity. And you might think your work only matters if there's some visible fruit of spiritual progress in the life of other people around you in your field of work, but that's just not what God says. Repentance is in many ways very mundane, demonstrated in the little things day by day, moment after moment. People want to knock it out with one big action, but it's the consistency of doing what God says that shows what we're really like. And in many ways, this is a lot harder because it requires faith and perseverance. And so while it is good to want to do great things for God, don't let that replace what God actually does say to do, which is to do everyday things for God. And to do exactly what we're supposed to do in every moment. So the question is, are you willing to do that? Well, in light of God's coming judgment, I I hope so. I hope you're willing to say, you know, if God asked me some great thing, I would do that. So why not do the thing that God has said and in my everyday life repent of the evil deeds that I would otherwise do? This is the standard. Repent, bear fruits in keeping with repentance, and you'll be saved from your sins. And God will glorify his name in your life. Let's pray together. God, we thank you for this time, and we uh, thank you for the gift of repentance. You didn't have to give us a chance to do it. You didn't have to give us the grace to do it, and yet you not only did that, but you also provided that when we turn, our sins are forgiven through what Christ has done. May we long to and have the, the perseverance to serve you and to honor you in everyday life. We pray that you would help us to love and to do what you've said. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.